true obedience is obedience without needing to have it explained to us. In the episode before us today, they are coming down the mountain after the most incredible experience in all of human experience. This experience on the Mount of Transfiguration in which they are eyewitnesses of the deity of Jesus Christ. And now that experience, as all experiences are, oh, it is over. As all experiences eventually end, this one has ended. And now they are coming back down the mountain, back down to life here on this fallen earth, back down to sinful mankind. In fact, ironically, or maybe not so ironically, they will find waiting for them at the bottom of the mountain an argument ensuing between the crowd that's gathered and the remaining nine disciples. The scribes are there. There's a demon-possessed boy there. The disciples can't help him. And there's this big confusion and chaos and argument going on literally at the bottom of the hill as they're coming down. Reminds us, of course, of another instance in which someone went up a mountain and met with God. I'm speaking of Moses, who goes up the mountain to meet with God, receives the law, comes down and finds at the bottom of the mountain golden calves and all sorts of pagan idolatry worship. Reminds us of that episode. And so this episode sets the context for us. If we could just maybe relate in your own mind, I know we've all been there. You can just relate maybe an experience in your mind of maybe the best vacation that you've had. This wonderful vacation that you go on to just the perfect getaway spot. And it was just a wonderful week of vacation. But now you're on the plane ride home. And the plane ride home is not even all that much fun. It's bad weather. There's turbulence. You're sort of sick. There's, you're crowded into the center seat. And then the plane lands to rainy, cold weather. And then just as you get off the airplane, your phone blows up with all these messages from work of all the disasters that are waiting for you the next day, messages that you're receiving from friends and family of all the things that have gone wrong, the things that you've got to deal with now that you're home. That sort of sinking, disappointing feeling as you're coming off the heels of just one of the best experiences that you've experienced All that to return back to not only life as normal, but just life as drudgery and life as the sinful existence that we know here on on earth. So that's the context of the episode before us today, beginning from verse 9. With those sort of thoughts in our mind, let's just begin here from verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. So they're coming back down the mountain. Let's just take a moment to just establish in our thoughts who the they in this passage is as they were coming down the mountain. So we weren't told how far down the mountain the other nine were left, if they were all the way at the bottom or if they've come down and they've rejoined. And so is the they here the 12 or is it still the three? And if you look down to verse 14, we realize that the they is still just the three because verse 14 tells us, and when they came to the disciples, meaning when the four, Jesus and the three disciples, come to the other nine. So the episode before us today is still going to be in the context of the three, of the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, along with Jesus. And so as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. So we've come across that word previously in the numerous times in which Jesus has commanded 
that no one would tell what they have perceived about him as they have perceived his deity, the experience on the water, the, uh, the feedings, the cleansings of the lepers, the healings, all these things. As they have perceived deity, we have experienced this command from Jesus previously to tell no one what you have seen. This command has gone to those like the leper in chapter one, but it's gone to the disciples to not tell of who he is. And as we've looked at this before, this command to silence, it's been a little bit puzzling for us. But as we've thought through why Jesus was commanding them to silence, One of the reasons, I think one of the primary reasons was just simply crowd control. As we've experienced all along, the size of the crowds has been an encumbrance to Jesus and they've often prevented him or at least seemed to prevent him from what he was here to do. Such as, for example, the episode with Jairus when he's trying to get to Jairus' house and yet the crowd is in his way. And then there's the woman with the flow of blood. And so the, the, the command to silence has been in part a command to help control the crowds so that the crowds don't get so overwhelming that Jesus is unable to go about his mission. But that's not the entirety of the reason. In fact, maybe that's not even the main reason or the central reason. This command to silence here in chapter nine will be the last command to silence that Jesus makes. And furthermore, not only is it the last time Jesus commands them to silence, it is the only time that he gives the command to silence and also gives a reason or a time delineation for how long this command remains in effect. So he commands them to tell no one until a certain point, a certain time. We'll talk about that. The time is when the Son of Man has been raised. So the same word we've seen before, which means not just asks or suggests or strongly implies, but strictly, sternly charges them under no circumstances are you to tell anyone. But this time there is a time factor until the Son of Man is raised from the dead or the resurrection. So this being the last command to silence, also the one that the only one that includes additional information And the context of it, all those things come together to help us to see what is perhaps the central reason for all of the commands to silence. And all of the commands to silence have come to the disciples, at least in part, because their understanding of the Messiah was so complete and so faulty that if they were not silent about this Messiah, whom they've just confessed, then the proclamation about him would be a wrong proclamation. It would be a proclamation that included his power and his glory and his ability to heal diseases and speak to wind and waves and multiply food. But that would be not just a one-sided picture of Messiah. That would be a faulty picture of Messiah. So we see that very plainly and very clearly here because this is right on the heels of, of course, Peter's confession. You are the Christ. The ultimate, so far to this point, the ultimate confession of we recognize who you are. You are the Christ. Followed by this experience of glory and majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. Certainly, if Peter, James, and John had spoken after this, then the the words that they would speak would be words of glory and majesty. And Jesus wants to command them to silence because as we'll see a little bit later in our passage, This understanding of a Messiah that is all glory and all power and all majesty is not just a one-sided understanding. It is a faulty understanding. And so Jesus wants them to remain silent until 
as he says, such time as he has been raised from the dead. So let's think for just a moment about the difficulty of this command that Jesus gives to the disciples, because they have just experienced once again, something that mankind has never experienced in another context like that. They have experienced visually, audibly, and in even more ways than that, as the cloud overshadowed them, they have experienced the deity of the incarnate Christ. And you know what it's like when you are the first one to experience something tremendous, something exciting, something glorious or something grand, and you are the first one with that news. Do you know how you have this impulse? It's like we have this built-in impulse to be the bearers of that news, to be the, the ones that spread the exciting news, to be the first ones to tell about something. And so imagine now this command to silence. What you have just seen, you have just seen the most incredible thing that human eyes have ever perceived. Yet, you are to tell no one about this. Think of the difficulty of that command. Think of a little bit later on in Acts chapter 4, when two of these same apostles here, Peter and John, we read in Acts chapter 4 when they say, how can we but speak of the things that we have seen, of the things that we have heard, the things that we've experienced? We can't not speak of those things. And so here these disciples are told not to tell anyone. And I, I take the command to mean also the other nine, that the prohibition is against speaking even to the other nine. Certainly the other nine would have been among all people, those who would have understood and believed. The other nine, which have experienced, of course, the miraculous feedings, the cleansing of lepers, the two incidents on the sea, the other nine would have been first in line to say, wow, we believe everything that you're saying. That is so incredible. And yet this admonition, this prohibition against speaking into anyone as they were coming down, he charged them strictly or he strictly ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had, been, had risen from the dead. So, verse 10, they kept the matter. Literally, they kept the word. The word there is logos. They kept the word to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So we're told here that they obeyed the command. In fact, Luke makes it even more plain for us in his rendering of the same event from Luke chapter 9 and verse 36. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So they, they are given this command to silence and they're given a length for how long they're to be silent. Now, as we're going to see as the passage unfolds, their understanding at this point of the resurrection is the resurrection at the end of the age. So in their mind, the command to silence is a command until the end of the age. So it's a, that's a very long period of time to remain mum about something that is so overwhelming and so exciting. But yet they obey this command. And so what we see here at this point is a rare glimpse in Mark's gospel, a rare glimpse to a side of the disciples that's not often shown to us 
in Mark's gospel. As we've said repeatedly, Mark is the harshest on the disciples of any of the four gospels. In particular, he is extremely harsh on their lack of perception. And he portrays them over and over as just this bunch of followers of Jesus that though they love him and though they are devoted to following him, yet again and again, they just don't understand and they just misperceive everything. And so this picture of the disciples is going to continue all the way through the end of the gospel. And that is the dominant picture that Mark shows us of the disciples. However, His portrayal of the disciples is not entirely negative. He does portray some positive aspects of the the disciples. And what Mark displays in a positive manner of the disciples is always the same thing. What Mark shows us in a positive light of the disciples is their obedience. Remember in chapter 1, we recognize there in chapter 1 as Jesus calls them, he says, leave your nets and follow me. And then what do they do? They do just that. They don't understand. They misunderstand. They misperceive, yet they obey and they follow. Here again, we are shown a picture of disciples that although they are pictured as spiritually dull and spiritually slow to comprehend, yet they're not belligerent. They're not disobedient. They do obey their master's voice because they are his sheep and his sheep hear his voice and his sheep obey his voice. And so here they render obedience to Jesus. They, they render this obedience. And in Mark's words, it's obedience that is complete and total, that they told no one in those days of anything that they had seen until, of course, the time comes in which they are then allowed to speak of it. So the first thing that we want to make note of here is just the obedience of the disciples, and in particular, the obedience of the disciples to a command that, get this part, did not make sense. There is no way that the disciples perceived of Jesus' command to silence because, of course, he hasn't suffered yet. He hasn't been killed yet. And so the other truth or the other aspect of the Messiah that must be part of their understanding before they are ready to proclaim him, that hasn't occurred yet. Jesus has been talking about this, but they are far from understanding this yet. And so for them, this had to be a command that just did not really makes sense to them. And yet they obeyed, which is so important to make note of the fact that that is true obedience. True obedience is obedience without needing to have it explained to us or true obedience without needing to understand what God is up to or the wisdom behind God's commands or the rationale behind God's commands. So often we are so quick to say something such as this. If God would just show me what he's up to, I would be happy to obey. I would be happy to comply. I would be happy to accept the situation that he's put me in if he would just show me what he's doing. And that's just not his way. There's certainly sometimes that he may do something such as that, or he may show us some insight into the spiritual works that he's doing. But typically God doesn't divulge to us his plans in our life because he asks and he expects obedience without our understanding. Because if God were to show us the wisdom of his plan for our life, then our obedience would be obedience that is not from what? Faith. It would not be from faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us that the only thing that God is pleased with is that which comes from faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith, you understand, requires a certain sense of ignorance. Ignorance is required in order for faith to be present because if there is no ignorance... 
And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I just mean that in in the sense of a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. If there's no ignorance, then there's no place for faith because faith is trusting and acting upon what you can't see and what you don't understand and what you don't necessarily have the rationale for. And so God repeatedly commands and expects and requires his children to be those disciples those type of followers who are willing and and able to render obedience without needing for God to explain things to us. Think with me of the Bible's premier example of saving faith. The Bible gives to us a number of human examples for all sorts of attributes and realities of our faith, such as David, who's given to us as an example of one whose heart is fully devoted to God, or Solomon as the example of one who is wise, or... uh, Uh, Moses as one who is humble. And so think with me of who is the biblical example of saving faith. It is, of course, Abraham. Abraham is the Bible's premier example of saving faith. And just think of some instances in the life of Abraham as he was, first of all, called to leave the land of Ur, the Chaldees, with no real explanation. God says, I'm going to make a great nation of you but I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I'm not telling you where I'm taking you. I just want you to pack up your stuff and leave. I'll tell you when we get there, that sort of thing. But then all of that culminates at a point in Abraham's life, and you all know where I'm going with this, in Genesis chapter 22, when that command of commands comes to Abraham's mind, take that son, the one miracle son, Isaac, the one that you love so much, take him up the mountain and sacrifice him to me. Think for just a moment of how that command must have sounded to Abraham. God to Abraham must have sounded in that moment like maybe at best a pagan deity that was commanding Abraham to do what the pagans that lived around him did. The horrible practice of sacrificing their own children. Maybe God sounded something like that to Abraham. Or worse... Do you think Abraham maybe thought to himself, is that God or is that a demon? Is that that a demon telling me to go and sacrifice my son? Imagine what God must have sounded like to Abraham and how nonsensical that command must have sounded to him. Yet he, as the example of saving faith, was a man that could say, this is the God that supernaturally gave us this life in the womb. And this is the God that giving that life, certainly everything that he commands regarding that life is good. I don't see how I cannot possibly understand how this could be good, but everything else from this God's hand is good. And so therefore I will trust that this is good as well. That is a premier example of just what the type of obedience the disciples are willing to render at this point is. And it's an an obedience that doesn't require explanation. Think, on the other hand, of the opposite. Back from chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. That was the incident of the leper who comes to Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I'm willing, cleanses the leper, and then he commands the leper to say nothing to nobody, which made... No sense whatsoever. Why would he not want me to tell everybody about that? Surely I misunderstood him. Surely he didn't mean to not tell anybody about this. Surely that's not what he was saying. And so then the leper goes and tells everyone. And so here we see a contrast, a contrast between a follower of Christ 
and one who is not a follower of Christ. The followers of Christ, they hear a command and without understanding, they are willing and able to render complete and total obedience without Jesus having to explain it to them why. So we, brothers and sisters, we are blessed in our Christian walk when we too find ourselves in that position in which we can, from our heart, we can say to God, God, I will render unto you obedience and you don't need to explain to me what you're doing. It sure would be nice if I knew these things, but nevertheless, I am prepared to obey you whether or not I know the wisdom behind what you're doing or not. 